So, the Bible, one book, in the sense of what we see it, in, I'm, I'm talking old school, not digital, so I'm using the, the, the physical version. Uh, one book, but yet it's actually 66 books within it. Two sections. The Old Testament, as it's identified, has 39 books in it. The New Testament has 27 books. One author conveying truth through many writers. It's really important to know that. Um, we read a lot from what we in the New Testament, what God did in and through a man we know as the Apostle Paul. But Paul, you see clearly from Scripture, was the vessel that the Word of God was poured into. It was the heart of God coming through the hand of Paul, so to speak. It wasn't Paul's words. And, and we, it's really important to understand that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. What we have between Genesis and Revelation is the complete testament, the complete revelation of God. Now, within that, within the Bible, there are different types, different styles of writing. You have poetry. We have songs. We have proverbs. Um, history, there's story, narratives, there's a biographical uh, record, uh, parables, which is a type of teaching that would lay a, a spiritual truth alongside an earthly natural truth, a, alongside so you can see this through this. This helps you understand this. There's uh, letters, there's even prophetic style type of writing, or what's called prophecy. And so I say that because it's important to, to know what you're reading, agreed? You know, you could be reading history, and, and, and yet there would be poetry within the text. You can be reading something that's poetic. I mean, you want to understand that's not necessarily a historical record. That's a different way of literary style of conveying something. It's important because if you're reading history, the Acts of the Apostles, you don't want to interpret it with, like you were reading some of the Psalms in, in poetry. Does that make sense? Because this actually happened, this is this is conveying a, a, a relationship, a truth through a different writing style. So that's pretty basic, but it's important to remind ourselves. It helps us when we so we don't struggle in our interpretation sometimes. Now we're going to start with Psalm 22, where you read poetry and you have prophecy within the verses you are reading. So in Psalm 22, we'll bring it up on projection. Psalm 22, verse 16. Reads, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. So it's poetic. It's, it's presenting a picture. But then it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. You and I live on, on this side of the cross. And this is written on the other side of the cross historically. So it was written hundreds of years before it was fulfilled. But in this messianic, speaking of the Messiah, poem, poetry, this psalm, this song, we have prophecy, which we know to be fulfilled because when we see this description, we read later what actually literally took place. And, and all this, of course, we're looking back on, which I, I find just fascinating. So prophecy, as we've studied here even in the gifts, prophecy is God's word concerning the future, concerning situations, conditions, events. Um, and I, I want to make sure we touch on this very simple thing, but important. Biblical prophecies are not predictions. Predictions 
whether you look at some people that have a, a reputation, a Nostradamus or some of these other people, predictions carry an element of uncertainty. They carry a possibility, a probability, uh, an expert's um, guess about a given topic, like weather, financial, you know, whatever it may be. Prophecy, biblical prophecy, is perfect in fulfillment. God does not predict that something might happen. He's proclaimed prophetically, perfectly, that it will take place. And we have the benefit, living where we do in the history of humanity, to look back on prophecy that has been fulfilled, just like we just glanced at Psalm 22. Nearly a third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. A man by the name of John Walvoord, who wrote a book, Every Prophecy of the Bible, I actually have it in my office, I forgot to bring it out and show it to you. But anyway, it's, it just lists over a thousand prophecies in the Bible, and approximately 500 of them have already been literally fulfilled. That's pretty good, wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's not, we don't ever want to think it's some prediction. It's, it's very, very important to see the difference between the two. Understanding prophecy is important to understanding God. We can look back on what God has said and get a glimpse of the loving nature of God. If he says something so that the world, and even you and I perhaps, I know I can speak for myself, in my unregenerate state before I was born again, I spoke of God as this unpredictable power that if you got out of line, he's going to hit you with lightning or something. Just like he was just, you couldn't really, you just never know how it was going to, you know, you know he's going to see, oh, the, you know, how was it phrased in my household? Oh, uh, the Almighty's going to do what the Almighty's going to do. You, like you can't really know. How does that help you in regards to wanting to know your creator? Because that's a desire in every human being. There is a desire within us to know who we are, where we're from, and all these different phrases we use, but we just want to know our Creator. It's implanted according to Romans 1. And so it's hard to do that when you just don't know when to approach and what's going to happen, and you could just you could have come in on the wrong day, you might have been the wrong number, you could have just been evaporated, whatever. But when prophecy gives us a glimpse of His loving nature, then we can start kind of weighing it through, even in our rationale. Our rationale will not bring us to salvation, but it will bring us to that door of conversion. Because rationale, you can't just logically come to Christ. It takes the grace of God to reveal your heart, to recognize He literally does the work that you know that you are a sinner. You, know, you can talk someone into recognizing that. You can even lead them in a sinner's prayer, and they not be saved. Because their heart has not accepted the, the guilt they have for personal sin. It's when God does that work and there's this work of the heart coming to this realization. And so he brings this truth to us. We see his love. So, you know, prophecy, it's not just what will take place in the future. It even involves what's taken place in the past. It helps us because what's been fulfilled gives us confident certainty concerning what's yet to be fulfilled. Let's consider one that we all know, John 3.16. In John 3.16, and you consider that, John 3.16, when you, when you start processing that and thinking, okay, so we know this verse, we look at this verse frequently, often. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, 
It's an example of how prophecy helps us to understand God. How do we know God so loved the world? Well, he tells us what happened in the beginning in detail. It's the Genesis account, we call it, the creation account. He tells us what took place when in the creation of mankind, the, the interaction between deity and humanity. He, he tells us about our relation to God before sin and even presents us a prophecy about what, hap- what would happen when we sin. What would happen? For when you sin, death will enter the world. Death wasn't there, but death will enter the world if humanity, when humanity rejects him. So how does God deal with this sin? Well, John 3.16 tells you and me. For he so loved the world that he gave himself. It's, we don't often see that verse as prophetic in type, but you think about it. He's, he speaks of what he will do, and we'll get into it a couple out of Genesis. And so then he gave himself. Last thing on prophecy, and you'll see why it all fits together, is you know often prophecy from the Old Testament, we, we see two or three fulfillments. You have contemporary, oftentimes in Isaiah and Ezekiel and in any of them. There's a contemporary, at the time it was written, Addressing the issue at hand, there's a prophecy and it will be fulfilled, you know, maybe in that contemporary element. There's a future element where it'll take place sometime after it's written. And often we see the third element is the messianic, or speaking of the Messiah. It's concerning Jesus, who is the Messiah, Jesus, who is the Christ. And so as we, you know, seek to understand and apply prophecy, we, we want to realize that there's there are these different elements to it. And so let's go to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three. We have what's referred to of the proto evangelium, or evangelium as some would say. It's proto speaks of first, the first gospel in Genesis three fifteen. Speaking to the serpent, because he just deceived Adam and Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the first promise of God for salvation that will come, the woman's seed, speaking of virgin birth, the head in this particular text, speaking of, uh, it always speaks of of, um, authority and power. So when it says in between... Your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, speaking of the Messiah shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise the Messiah's heel. So he has authority and power, and the heel is, many receive this or realize and recognize this as referring to the cross. For we know Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. And so you see this interesting, very, uh, I think, fascinating look. And, And so... When he says, he shall bruise your head, in the Garden of Eden, it appeared that Satan had a victory in getting Adam and Eve to sin. But we see that God knew what was happening. Even in that moment when this happened, it seemed like it all come apart there. The garden wasn't so great. God was not surprised by humanity's setback. He wasn't like, oh, like, oh no, Satan deceived humanity. God's plan is greater than the incident in the Garden of Eden because God's plan is greater because you have innocent man, 
But God's plans to bring forth redeemed man. So innocent man in that, you know, he, he hadn't sinned, but then he did. And it shows a much greater love, is it, does it not? For God to choose to redeem humanity, even though God was not the guilty one. So, prophecies concerning God's plan of redemption for sinful man. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14, you're familiar with it. But we're told in Isaiah 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. We're not going to take the time today to dig into this prophecy and his contemporary fulfillment. Many believe that with King Ahaz there was a fulfillment just after this statement by Isaiah that the Lord had given him. But we do know this speaks of a future, of a messianic fulfillment. It was written more than 700 years before Jesus' birth. The messianic fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, we find, you can hold your finger there or whichever, uh, I don't know that you need to, actually, if we go to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and you'll find, we'll, we'll begin in verse 18, and you'll see in verse 23, the verse we read there out of Isaiah is placed here in the Gospel of Matthew. So, we've read this prophecy 700 years prior to the birth. The prophecy is so that we can understand who God is and how God is, ultimately. And so, God, knowing the need of humanity creating you and I in His image and likeness, bringing into our experience and our uh, capacity volition or free will. It's, it's a perplexity. It's a complexity in the human logic. Here's what I'm saying. So God created man, and God knew what man would do, so why didn't God create man so he wouldn't do it? Right? I mean, literally, I mean, like, well, why did he create Garden of Eden and then have it where man would fail when he knew man would fail? It's like, well, there's this thing called love. And love requires free will. Love requires the ability, the capacity to choose. See, if, if he made us robotic or, you know, machines, if you would, that we're in an environment and we only do certain things in that environment, then we're really not expressing love or realizing love because we have no choice but just to go through the motions. Love requires free will. So creating humanity in his image and likeness, we have this capacity to believe and receive what he's offered or reject it. And, and we know what happened. Humanity rejected it. Don't get mad at Adam and Eve. You'd have done the same. <laughs> Seriously. You know, we're further down the gene pool, if you want to think of it that way. There's nobody around that would, could say, well, gosh, I, uh, yeah, I wouldn't do it. Even if you knew what you know now, you'd still do it. Because there's that part of human nature and capacity and temptation and all the deception. So that's why I believe the innocent man is one state of experience, history but redeemed man is really what God shows really love and truth through. So we're back now to Matthew 18 of chapter 1. 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for what that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this will be done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So, as I mentioned, prophecy and these things that God declares, what we see so frequently in the Old Testament, are actually for our benefit, to strengthen us in our faith, to encourage us. We read here, this is how the birth unfolded. This is what, how this took place. You've seen there in verse 18. You know, they're engaged. And before she was, before Joseph and, and Mary consummated the marriage, before it was ceremonially, you know, at that stage of we're married, they're in this uh, elongated engagement, but it's not even accurate to say that because it was so much more complex. To break the betrothal period required a divorcement. So it was pretty, you're pretty, you know, it's pretty locked in. It's a pretty, it's a commitment. And she's with child. And the Bible tells us real world stuff. Verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make a public example of her. What, what, what would that mean? He would make her and take her, make her, take her before the, the courts of the day, the courtyard or wherever. And, and he would, accuse her of sexual morality because she's pregnant. It's pretty easy to figure out how that happens. You don't need medical science to tell you how babies are made. And so like, oh, we have a serious problem here. And look at the, look at the nature, the character of Joseph. He did not want to make a public spectacle of her. He, there's something more to this. I, this is not the Mary I know. I, I mean, how do you, how does she explain it? Uh, God did it. I mean, how do you, how do you explain that? <laughs> Can you imagine this conversation between commit, two committed people? Hey, uh, Joe, I, I, I just been kind of on my heart a lot. I had a really amazing experience, and this angel appeared to me, and and I'm going to carry the baby, the Messiah. So I'm pregnant. Right, right. How's Joseph going to respond? He's a man. He's like, I, 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 oh man. And I, I, that's not recorded in scripture, that conversation between Mary and Joseph. I always wondered, I always wished it would have been, you know, but, you know, it's not. Nonetheless, you see how Joseph then is visited by God. God just met him as he's working through this perplexity and this, this complication and this cultural pressure and all these what ifs. He was visited, it appeared to him in a dream, and said, don't worry about it. This is what she said is true. She, this one child within your wife-to-be is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so I'm sure he had a, a great relief, and he was told, you know, the child won't be named after you. 
the child will be named Jehovah, Jehovah is salvation. The child will be named Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins, which I believe to Joseph and Mary was a confirmation that this child was the Messiah because they understood what the role would be. They understood even back, if you would, Genesis 3.15. A virgin shall be with child and bear a son. Those of who get into the scholarly studies, they call themselves those who get into the breakdown and, okay, well, the, the academic side of this, they go, well, you know, the, the word virgin speaks of a young maiden, which is true in, in the language. It's not how it was ever used in Scripture. It always spoke of virgin uh, in the Septuagint and, and even in um, the uh, Jewish um, writings. Why do I mention that? Well, they say that this could mean just a young woman, which is probably how it would have been seen as a, the fulfillment in the time of Ahaz early on and in the contemporary fulfillment. But you can't tell me that this is a miracle when a young maiden is with child. I don't care what culture it is. You wouldn't say, oh, that's a sign from God. This, this 16-year-old or whatever age is pregnant. Right? There wouldn't be, there would, how is this a sign? The context of the prophecy helps us understand what, the, what is being said. It's like, it's a, this is a sign to you that this, 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 this virgin shall bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. It's awesome because that was fulfilled, spoken of, and then fulfilled 700 plus years later. Let's look at one more. Um, let's look at, uh, so we have Isaiah seven fourteen fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. There we read. Let's look at Micah, um, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is another one that's interesting because it's a geographic prophecy, so to speak, in, in type. It says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphatha, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So here we have this fulfillment, this prophecy that that's declared in, in Micah. And now if you will turn with me back to Matthew, we go back to Matthew, specifically chapter 2. And to catch a little more of the story, we're going to build to it. We're going to look in verse 1 of Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Because when the king's troubled, you're troubled. Verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So, when you're reading through the Old Testament and you're looking at prophecies and different things, let's just face it, it's just hard to figure out where they fit sometimes. How do they dovetail? How do they fulfill? You know a real easy way to resolve it sometimes? 
when the New Testament reference it, then you know you got it. <laughs> when, they, when it says, this is a fulfillment of what was said back here, you know it's spot on. So we know here that this was a fulfillment, that this is where the, the Messiah, this is where this ruler of the people, the ruler from old and everlasting, would, would be born. Where did most people expect the Messiah to be born? Who were not literate, if you would. They weren't aware of the word of God. Jerusalem, exactly. Jerusalem. The city of our king is going to be in Jerusalem. We know that most people, we would presume, because of the the the, the, the rank in human order, God among us, it's going to be a lot of pomp and a lot of pageantry. There's going to be this is going to be the most extravagant celebration in all of history. That's the way we would orchestrate it. That's the way we would coordinate it. That's how we would do the event planning. And yet, God does what? Something so fascinating. He he has this child himself to be born in Bethlehem. Not a not a. It's it's a popular place now because it's a tourist trap, but. In that day, it was like, let's just say the other side of the tracks, so to speak. I grew up in Boise. Back in the day, you could say it was Garden City, because Garden City didn't have many gardens, unless it was growing single-wides. That's about all it was there at, the, at most. So it's like this Bethlehem wasn't a, 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 wasn't a prominent place in the culture. We get it. And so, so we have here, just, we just looked at two. There were over 100 prophecies concerning Jesus' birth and life. And I want to encourage you, review, dig in. If you want some other resources, I'd love to get with you. But there's two things I want to cover tonight. I want to just do a refresher on those prophecies, because I believe most of you in here, I know you well enough to know you've looked at these, you've read these, you've maybe even studied them. But I also want to consider the purposes that Jesus came to accomplish. The purposes that Jesus came to accomplish. Let's consider the first one. And we find it in 1 John Chapter 3, verse 8. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So make a note of that. First thing I would say, oh, four things to cover. He came to destroy the works of the devil. It seems obvious, but it's very important to realize, you know, God in his purposes in rescuing us and bringing us into a right relationship, he, he's, he's, he has purpose. He, there's an intent and there's a price that he will pay. We know that. We, he pays with his life, if you would. We know also in Hebrews of the same thought, same point, where he came to destroy the works of the devil. We know in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, let me read that to you. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So when we celebrate, when we take communion, when we recognize what Jesus has done, we recognize that he is victorious over darkness, over death. He has conquered death and hell. And it's so important because what is the greatest fear of someone who's sane in the brain? If they're, they're clear thinking. 
and you're, you're not born again, you're just, you're, just, you're just living life, what's your greatest fear? Death, exactly, because you're smart, and you know you're mortal, and you're not immortal. And so the, you do certain things, and you know, younger, you tend to take more chances. When you live through them, you rethink that, and you don't tend to keep doing those things. That's how you stay alive. But you're realizing, man, this, I don't, I, I, you know, and, and the older you get, and most frequently, not always, the more you start thinking, man, I, you know, I'm going to die someday. Well, you know, and that's what God actually uses the reality of mortality to bring to the awareness of each one of us our own, our own destiny, and that is death. And He helps us to realize that. And then He offers, listen, there's forgiveness, though. You can go from death to life. See, religion tells you and me we can clean up our life. We can live a few bad years or decades, and then we get our act together and clean it up, and we offset, we do good to offset all those bad things we did, and hopefully at the end, we've scored more than the bad guy. We, we've, had a, we've reconciled the account, and so we're in better shape. That's religion. Jesus says it doesn't work. The Word of God says that's not going to reconcile it because of the consequences, the, the wages, the price of sin is death. And the only way that that sin debt can be paid is for God himself, because that's who's the sin against, for God himself to pay that sin debt. The sin you and I have, we can pay the debt. We would die and be eternally separated from God. Or we can say, I, I, that doesn't, that's not good. God says, hey, well, here's the thing. I, I came, I died for you. I took away the power of death, which is what the devil wants to hold over people. I conquered that. I own that now. And literally, as you see from this text out of Hebrews, he just came to destroy him who had the power of death. So if you're a note taker, we're looking at considering the purposes that Jesus came to accomplish. The first point would have been he came to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, we looked at two verses. 1 John 3.8, Hebrews 2.14. So in the second point we'll look at, on these purposes that Jesus came to accomplish. He came to save, not condemn. We, we can revert or return back to, to John chapter um, 3 in that regards. In John chapter 3, as we've looked at, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, ever, have everlasting life. Notice this in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We hear that. We hopefully have been sharing that with people if we've been Christians for very long. But we always want to remember this is the declaration of the Word of God. It's not the presentation of a contemporary religion exclusively. It's not just what we tell people so that they can know about Jesus. It's what the Word of God says. It's really important that we have that settled in our mind because that allows us to speak with confidence and conviction. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but many people think you and I were condemning people. You know, yeah, you got your life together, you got Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, and they're kind of cynical or derogatory, maybe in your workplace or street or family reunion or whatever. But you're like, I'm not here to condemn you. You know, like when you are with somebody and they're, speaking very profane even, and then I've had this happen so many times. Because when I meet with people that are like um, people on the street or in, you know, fishing or hunting, wherever I happen to be, I don't, 
I don't put on my pastor badge. You know what I'm saying? I'm just a normal guy. But inevitably, somebody mentions, oh, hey, have you met Pastor Dan? I'm like, why can't I just be Dan that fishes? <laughs> you know what I mean? But, oh, yeah. So, and then they realize they got to clean up their language. Better watch it. He's a pastor. I'm like, I'm not here to, I'm not condemning you. Speak how you want. That's between you and whoever you believe runs your language. It's like, I don't, you know what I'm saying? Because they think that we're there. To, we're not here to condemn them. I'm like, hey, you say what you want to say. I, I'm not the I'm not the language police. You know, I spoke that such and such. But honestly, I believe in a creator. I believe in the living God. I believe he's forgiven me. And I believe he teaches me words mean things. And I should use words to convey proper things. And, I, you know, I don't get in their face well, sometimes, but too much. I usually try to use humor or some way to kind of, you get it, present it. But my point is, people perceive that God's condemning them. He's got, no. The point of Christ, Jesus' coming, was to save the world, to save humanity, to offer life that you would not perish, but you would have everlasting life. And he didn't come to condemn, but to save. He came to save, not condemn. The third point we would consider under these purposes that Jesus came to accomplish, he came that you may have abundant life. He came that you may have abundant life. See, as I've kind of been mentioning and referencing, when you, when you realize that God is not against you, it opens your eyes to see what he offers you. When I realize he's not just waiting to hit the lightning button, when I realize he's not just keeping score and hopefully someday I can get out of the deficit, when I realize his love, he's not to condemn, that changes things. It changes them with people, right? It's street level, you know. When you approach someone and your perception is they're mad at you and they actually have authority over you, then as you approach them, there's a lot that goes through you, right? You don't, and if you see them, oh, let's just do a real world example. Your bosses, you perceive is upset with you. You didn't accomplish what you're supposed to. You're at Walmart. You see him turn and go down an aisle, but you were going that way. And what do you do? You go the other way. You use this mouse maze called, you know, aisles, and you find a way to maybe go back to what you're getting or realize I can just come back later. Why is that? Your perception about that person is that they're upset with you. But if you just got a promotion, you just got a pat on the back, you were, you were genuinely complimented for the efforts you're putting forth for the company, you had a really good engagement with this person prior to leaving work, you get to work, and he's going down the aisle. How do you do that? You have no problem walking, going up. There. I mean, I want to just say thank you once again. I really appreciate working for the company. I think, you know, you know, you see what I'm saying? Because the bottom line is when you realize they're not against you, it opens your eyes to what he offers you. And so often I think even Christians fall for just a deception of the enemy. God wants us to just be weighed down and worrisome and heavy laden by the things of this life. And yet he tells you and me in John 10.10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. Who's the thief? In that context, it's the devil. He identifies the devil as a thief. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And he says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. When he speaks of abundance, he's not 
necessarily, the emphasis is not on duration, quantity. The emphasis is on quality. The type of life, a joy and a peace and a calmness and awareness of his forgiveness and a knowledge of his closeness. You, you literally, as an individual, as hard as it is to grasp and even walk in the conscious truth, He's with you and dwells within you and is not against you and is, is not condemning you. He, is, he loves you. And it's just hard to process. But he's saying, listen, I want you to know that life, that you can have this life and more abundantly. We're told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, and you know that, that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him, in him there is no sin. Manifested means may know. He came for what purpose again? To take away our sins. We, we Because how does that relate to the subheading, he came that you may have abundant life? When you know that he's taken care of your sins, when he, you know the word of God that instructs you how to deal with your sins, how does a Christian who's born again and forgiven deal with sin? Well, you got to say, well, I'm, I'm forgiven. Okay, I, no matter what I do, he's forgiven me. Or, according to 1 John 1 or 1 9, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, some people have been a little perplexed. Well, why do I have to confess it if he's already forgiven me of my sins, past, present, and future? Because it's relational. And when I'm born again and I'm, and I'm you know, forgiven of sin, past, present, and future, he knows I will still sin. There will still be things I will stumble. I will give into temptation. Certain things will happen in this life. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. So how do, why, what's the problem? It's relational. It, it's not legal. You know what I mean? Legally, it's taken care of in that sense of the law. Relationally, it's like when you have friction. Once again, like I mentioned in an analogy, when there's friction, you need to recognize what the issue is sometimes, right? So if I'm avoiding God because I know I've done wrong, what's the best thing to do? Confess it. I don't have to print it in the paper. I don't have to ask for like confession time and a public gathering before God himself. I just, God, I, why do I think that? Why did I say that? Lord, forgive me for why I did that. It says when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That conveys and confirms and verifies to you and me what we've already looked at that he loves us, he does not condemn us, and he calls us into a closer walk. So this is why Jesus, you know, he, these are the, the practical understanding of the doctrine of salvation. It helps us to understand and go, well, this is, this is how this all come down. The fourth point under the heading, you know, or the thought of con- the purposes that Jesus came to accomplish, he came that your joy may be full. I find that one so fascinating, especially the songs we sing. God's gift to you is new life. You set free from sin. You knowing his love, his forgiveness, his presence, his power, his gift. We think of this season, this time of year, gifts, correct? There's gifts that are given. So these gifts, what gift did he give us? He gave us a a new life, ultimately a real life change because you're a child of the king. And so in John 15, 11, John 15, 11, we're told, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may remain full. I've 
mold on this and meditate and chewed upon and contemplated and considered this passage for a long time now. That he's saying to you and I, he was saying to his disciples, I've told you these things. I've given you this word. I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. He didn't say my joy definitively, therefore, absolutely will remain in you. Do you see what he's saying? I presented this to you that my joy may remain in you. I believe we can, I don't think we can technically lose our joy, but it's kind of like a fire. You can put a blanket on it. You can smother the flame. It'll still be warm. There'll still be embers, but you can, you can smother joy, can we? You know, just in our thought processes, we're told in Romans 12, 1 and 2, because of what God's done to present ourselves living sacrifices, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're told in Philippians 4, think upon these things, having an awareness of the truths of God, so that we realize our joy can remain in us. Our, our happiness is fleeting. Happiness relates to just even the word is speaking of happenstance circumstances and things that come and go. Joy is much deeper. Joy we know to be relational truth. Joy that his joy would remain in us and that our joy would be full. And so, man, what a beautiful comprehension thought, point of meditation, that our joy would be full. Because I look at it and go, so what robbed me of my joy last week? What robbed, Have you ever had it where you got up joyful? I wouldn't say Monday, but let's just say Friday. Because that culturally sometimes that seems to be happenstance situation. So you get up, you're happy, man. I'm like, man, this is a good day. Oh, Feels so good. You got a good worship song. You got a song in your heart. You're good. You go to work. And by 10 o'clock, you don't even know what happened, but you are more Eeyore than you are Tigger. You are just like, Ugh. I was like, man, do you do you just accept that? Because I don't I think this text tells us, you know, I, I look at that. When I have those moments, I think, okay, why did I go from here to here? What, what happened in my two-hour time frame or the last hour that I went from here to here? What robbed me of my joy? What stole the joy? What did I smother the joy with or however it may be? And so it kind of, a little bit of not so much assessment, but review. Oh, that person called. That situation came up. And then maybe fear crept in. Uh, then maybe, you know, you know um, whatever type of unbelief, whatever crept in, or just, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, and then your false assumption creeps in. That happens most often in a husband-wife relationship. There's a false assumption, and then all of a sudden, you may be mad at each other, and you don't even really know why. And so I kind of like to back up and go, what robbed me of my joy functionally in the last 30 minutes, the last three hours, whatever? And I've found that that's relational. I want joy, I want to know, because this text tells you and me, John 15, 11, Jesus said these things that his joy would remain in me and that my joy would be full. So it really is, he has actually laid out and designed and, and offered and, and accomplished this, this victorious life for us. So let's, you know, let's not be liars at Christmas singing, singing joy to the world when we don't really have a whole lot of it, you know. Let's face it, like, okay, if I don't have it, it's not because I don't own it. It's because I'm not really experiencing it. You know, we have a little fireplace in our uh, living room, and it's really more aesthetics. It's not 
really functional for heating the house, but it creates a beautiful ambiance. And so Kim and I, a lot of times, we'll, we'll be there. But there's times when that fire just burns down. And although it's visual, even then you're not getting much warmth from it. But I can stoke it. We can add to it. And so I, that's my, one of my imagery or you know, kind of analogies for my own life practically. I just like, okay, I want to stir the fire of my heart that joy may, the, the joy can be fanned, can, can be maybe a flame grow more. So we sing joy to the world. The song actually goes, joy to the world, the Lord has come. That's why there's joy to the world. Let earth receive her king, this king that we read about, even from the beginning in Genesis. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Isn't that beautiful? Let me just break that down. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for just so much to consider and ponder and so many of these passages. Thank you, God. You give us remembrance. You help us as we review these things, but you do it in such a way, God, to refresh us and encourage us. And so even as the last portion, as these truths have built upon one upon another, another, and now to realize that you've come, that we may have joy, the knowledge of your forgiveness, the knowledge of this new life, that we truly born again people have this relationship with you. But we can cast all our cares upon you for you care for us. But we can lean upon you, not our own understanding, but in all our ways, let's commit these things to you and you would teach us Walk along, not just beside us, but carrying us, leaving your footprints in the sand on those tough days. And so thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Stir and refresh us for your glory and for our joy. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.